So it, there's a thing that I think you're right. It begins to guide decisions and presentation in ways that are interesting. I mean, if you think about traffic is now driven by Waze or Google Maps. You know, if everyone is driving using one of these things, it's not just giving you the state of the traffic. It's determining the traffic because it's everyone is following these routes prescribed by the algorithm. And it tends to work, so we trust it. It's got a high confidence, very accurate algorithm. But it's an interesting thing where it's sort of like, oh, the actual, the entire system is now being controlled by these private services. Hi everyone, welcome to the Zendras, where we explore why, how and what designers and design is straightforward. The mission is to interview the most forward-thinking designers and innovative creators on the planet to inspire and help you to reach your full creative potential and to make a positive impact in the world. In this episode, I chat with Josh Clark, founder of Big Medium in New York and author and speaker, as well as expert of UX design for artificial intelligence. With Josh, I talk about how AI is and could influence creative decision-making and also how it's already influencing our day-to-day -day activities and decision-making. We also discuss how he sees AI as a complementary aspect to human decision-making, should give signals, recommendations, but also make transparent to humans what level of confidence the AI actually has in the signal that it's showing. Playing with strong and weak signals to support and guide human decision-making. A super inspiring conversation on the future of AI. I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, I'm here with Josh Clark. Thank you so much for taking your time. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's good to see you again. Yeah, good to see you. So the two of us have met each other at the PUSH conference some years ago. And we have been both uh, have been speaking there and uh, you have been giving a talk about AI. And um, yeah, really happy to reconnect again. And um, so you are the founder of Big Media, which is a global consultancy doing a lot of work around AI um, and design, of course, user experience design. And you have been a UX design leader for many years. So we're going to dive into the topic of AI, about all of your learnings there, about the good side and the negative side of it and how design plays into it. Um, but before we dive into that, uh, Josh, it would be really great if you could just give the audience a bit more context again about yourself, a little bit about your journey. How did it all start out for you? How did you got into design and why do you put a lot of focus on AI? Yeah. Thanks. It, uh, and thanks for the interest in, in the history and the journey. It's, it's uh, all of us sort of have an interesting story. Well, I've, I've been leading to the design agency, Big Medium, that you mentioned for the last 20 years. And that in itself has been a journey of sort of what, what design looked like at the turn of the millennium and the focus then on, you know, sort of web technologies evolving into web 2.0, um, really, you know, dove into those things and, and worked on um, uh, content management systems sort of at a time when when open source content management systems were only just evolving since the beginning of WordPress and movable type, the blog platform back in the day. When the iPhone came out, I really found myself really taken by this new form of, of technology and really dove into that. And that became a real focus for, for I would say, the last decade. Uh, I wrote one of the first UX books about 
iOS design called Tapworthy, uh, and followed that with another book called Designing for Touch. So really thinking a lot about touchscreens and mobile and these the, the personal nature of interaction and data that these things introduced. And that really introduced me and started to fascinate me with, in terms of how that would work with machine learning and, and how to design for that. Um, and what I mean by that is that I think phones introduced sensor-based computing to the mainstream for the first time. You know, phones that could hear you or respond to your motion or understand what was nearby or where you were, where you were headed. And being able to detect patterns that were interesting in that uh, and, and work with that. Um, so that, that began sort of my journey into, into machine learning and AI that we'll talk about. Before all this though, before I ever got into design, I um, was a journalist. Um, and so before the web was invented, I was working for American public television, working on historical documentaries, um, a very narrow, you know, broadcast band, only a handful of people could create things. And there was a real sort of pattern and formula for how you create public television documentaries. And when the web came around, it was suddenly this opportunity where anybody could be a creator for better and for worse. Uh, and there wasn't a formula for how you you build things. And so I really was drawn to this um, sort of at the 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 middle of the beginning of my career. And I left journalism and documentary television and started working on the web and really was interested in that as, you know, what are emerging uh, best practices or emerging techniques to convey information and tell stories on the web. And I think that that's probably a through line for me is, well, here's a new thing. How can we use this in a responsible and creative way? So that's that's my story, you know, from from television and journalism and documentary film to the web to mobile to machine learning and AI. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the first projects that you have been working on? Then where you saw the positive contribution you can make from a UX side when it comes to these advanced technology projects, like for example, AI? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great question. I would say that it, one, one caveat that I'll put to this is it doesn't necessarily take advanced technology to have a great and impactful project. And I think sometimes as technologists, we forget that. And so one of the, I think, most impactful things that I've ever done was actually before I really was was almost an analog project called Couch to 5K. And it was something that I created 25 years ago in 1996 as a 25-year-old as a runner. I had just started running and I created this program to help new runners get through the awful part, you know, essentially to skeptical would-be runners get off the couch and start running. And so I created this nine-week schedule and put it on my brand new hand-coded website to share with the world. And since then, millions of people have used this schedule called Couch to 5K. The UK has adopted it as one of their national health systems. And that I think of as a design project, as a UX project. Here's this problem. 
people think running is terrible and boring and painful, and this is a blocker to better health. So what can we do? And sort of, I sort of took that essential problem and tried to change the UX of running to be something that was pleasurable or fun or interesting and sort of help people walk through this process. So in, in some way, my most successful design project has been an analog project. And, and I bring that up just to say, um, and I'm happy to talk about some of the other projects that, that are technology-based, is that I think that what's become clear is that technology can be a double-edged sword and that we've seen some of our democratic hopes of the web be co-opted by corp corporations. We've seen social media, which seemed like a fun way to interact with people, take on darker forms. So I think as much of an enthusiast as I am of technology and technological solutions, I've also found that my the enthusiasm of me as a younger designer has been tempered by a kind of practical skepticism of what could go wrong with this technology what could go certainly what could go right we have to have that optimism to make something to make and create new things but also sort of understanding it's like do we need technology for this are there better alternatives i think that we see that technologists always try to answer all things with technology or try to fix the problems introduced with technology with more technology. And I think maybe there's a, a caveat to that. And so I'm sorry, I haven't even answered your question though. Sort of what are some of the, the exciting things that I've worked on with machine learning? One of the earliest ones that I worked on was a, a company called Propeller Health. And it's an asthma inhaler with a little Bluetooth attachment to it. So it, it's something that fits on top of the asthma inhaler. And when you take a puff of your inhaler, it just registers it and talks to your phone and registers that as, you know, an attack. You're, this is this is something that, that's happening. And it just tracks where and when you have an asthma attack. And it talks to your phone to tell you that in the phone kind of handles most of the logic which is interesting from a personal point of view, right? That it, it begins to sort of map that to other patterns of time of day and location to suggest what the causes are. The, the main goal is to help you understand how well controlled is your asthma. Like a lot of, you know, a lot of us are a little bit more optimistic about our actual state of health than it actually represents. And so this is a way to sort of bring that up. But it also begins to surface patterns and sort of make suggestions for how you can make some lifestyle changes to improve your asthma. It's actually more interesting, though, in aggregate that at the time that I was working on this, it was distributed just through clinics. And so you could get you could start to see this epidemiological information about when and where people were having asthma attacks in a community and starting to see patterns around there's something in this area, this school could be, could have a problem with the building that's causing asthma. Uh, and so it was, it was this very simple thing, it was sort of an early internet of things project um, that took this sensor, put it onto an everyday device and created this data-driven that could influence not only individual behavior, but community behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think super interesting. And also, thanks for pointing out sort of a, a project that is uh, less involved with like advanced technology. And I think what uh, both of your examples show that very often the most meaningful project as a designer we can work on is the one that where we have the feeling we can support 
uh, the change of um, uh, a positive change towards people and could make a significant impact to their life. Like the first one, and actually both uh, projects you have mentioned are around human health, you know, how you can uh, support and foster that. So yeah, I think uh, both really great examples, super interesting examples. You know, that it's, it's, not, it's not about the most fancy and the most flashy technology uh, that makes their work impactful. After you have been working with AI projects for um, such a long time, what do you see are some of the common challenges you face when it comes to these projects? Yeah, I think the number one thing is that there is an, I, I see an optimism for a lot of people that is maybe overstates how good machine learning or artificial intelligence actually is. I mean, I think it's just worth pointing out that it, the current kind of category of artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just sort of brute force pattern matching, you know, so it, which is powerful. If you can find a pattern in anything, how could you act on it? That's the promise of, of machine learning, but it's not real intelligence. There's no deduction. There's no logic to it. There's, there's just sort of being able to spot patterns in machine learning. So one, one way to think of it is what the, what machine learning is able to do is this is really in some sense, really oversimplifying it, but at its root, it's figuring out what normal is and then either suggesting or predicting the next normal thing that is likely to happen or to find things that are not normal, you know, so in that case, that sort of things, it's like spending behavior outside the norm or, or, or sort of spotting potential financial crime or, you know, sort of problems, health, health issues. Um, so what's normal and good, what's the next normal and good thing, or what are bad things that are happening essentially. And one of the problems with that is what's normal. And you know, I, I think one of the some of the classic examples that we're all, that are already in circulation here are th seeing things around, for example, racial bias or people who are not, who are somehow not part of the mainstream. Um, it could be people, um, transgender people, or something who you know, my data does not map my personal data does not match the data that is in the system. And for a long time, you saw that, for example, that people of color wouldn't register well in digital photos because the digital cameras were not tuned to their skin color, that these things are tuned for what, for people with light skin. So does the data actually reflect all the people it should be? What is normal? Who decides what's normal? So that's a data problem. And I think that that's sort of something that the industry is onto and is really trying to be more inclusive. But all of the things that I'm talking about here are the machines are not very clever. They spot patterns and try to make a, a prediction or understand what's normal and what's not normal. And they're weird. You know, so so all of this is to say is that one of the things that was a new thing for me is that I was used to designing paths through information that I had control over. Uh, content that I could control. And so it was essentially designing for success. It was designing the happy path through a known and predictable set of content uh, or experiences. And what machine learning introduced was really a sort of a thing of like, oh, I have to design not for success, but to anticipate failure and mistakes. And so now it's sort of this kind of defensive design of what do I do if the algorithm is incorrect and how much can I trust the algorithm? 
these are probabilistic systems. That's what it means to sort of be sort of defined around some sense of normal. They don't actually produce answers. They, nothing is black or white to the robots. It's all shades of gray, all probabilistic. It's like, oh, this is a 98% match. This is 30% likely to happen. This has 75% confidence in this. Probabilistic systems. And so they never have answers. We as designers often present their results as an answer or a conclusion, but really they're signals. You know, this is sort of something that is likely to be a picture of a, of a cat, you know, but it's not ever actually saying this is a cat. It's like saying this is likely to be one. And once you have that recognition that you, that it sort of actually begins to say, oh, we can't and shouldn't trust algorithms to provide answers and to replace human judgment, but instead as signals that are stronger or weaker that can provide some recommendations or engage human judgment. So I think one of the, sorry, this is a long way around to your question of what, what are some of the problems that we see? There is often um, a trust and confidence in the algorithms that they can replace human judgment. And I think that's a mistake because they aren't that reliable. And in any case, is that really an outcome that we want? Instead, they're really great partners at engaging human judgment, at sort of doing a bunch of work that the machine, that, that humans are bad at, looking at vast amounts of detail, looking at a huge amount of data, finding patterns in things that are sort of beyond our puny human brains. And bringing that back to us to say, oh, here's some interesting patterns. Now I will act on that as a human. And so I think that often there's this allure to creating something that's like, oh, we can do this without people now. And I would sort of say, you know, actually the better thing is to think about how does this support people? How can we let the machines do the things that they do best and let people do the things that they do best? Because they are almost never the same thing. Mm -hmm. Super interesting. I mean, especially I like what you are pointing out that, you know, we should consider as at signals and how does it play together, right? With the, um, uh, with the different case and it, it changes the design process as well. Like you, you're saying so, and I think right now very often it's sort of in a controlled space because very often, like what is sort of the pattern recognition part or maybe the AI part, if you want to say so, is sort of contained in a box or as a specific screen. But I think if we're looking a little bit further, I think more and more of the overall experience of the overall software will be completely driven and represented, uh, the representation of the interface will be driven by maybe decisions or recommendations that come from an algorithm side, for example, what kind of users you are, what kind of problems you have, um, et cetera, and, and kind of show you the, the right interface at the uh, the right time or uh, every user has sort of like a slightly different one maybe. And then we're really going towards like a, a direction where we're designing a system uh, and like you said, the different cases, but we're not in control anymore so much about the actual result. So it's a very different way of like designing. I really like the term you said, a defensive design <laughs> uh, because you're kind of designing towards understanding all of the cases that could happening and making sure they are covered. Uh, it's not that you go into the offense because you know this is what we have to design. This is going to be the use case. This is going to be the solution. The solution has maybe towards the solution, there are recommendations from the AI side. So 
So you just have to basically support that and see how you can control that. Very different way of designing. So one way to be defensive about it too is I think that there's often this this idea, especially for newcomers to this, there's an assumption that machine learning and, and AI can is better than it can be. So it's like, let's create a chat bot that's just gonna you know, be my personal robot butler. You know, there's, there's this idea of like that it is more intelligent than it is, or that this can define our entire um, interface, for example. And what I've actually found is like that, given the constraints of the of the system and the way that these things are best working on really narrow problems, is that actually having narrow interactions with it can be good. So one of my favorite examples, and this is something that is both like an almost casual use and very focused use of machine learning, as well as being something that doesn't necessarily rely on them. It responds well if the if the algorithm is wrong. In Google Forms, the, this, the survey building tool, right, that Google has, when you go through and you start to, um, to create a survey, you know, the, the way that it works is you have your question and then there are like a, around a dozen different answer types, you know, multiple choice or um, checkbox or, you know, sort of all these different kinds of options, um, one to five scale. When you start to ask the question, how much did you enjoy this product? It will change to be a one to five scale, you know, like it will. So it will look at the question and before you get to the what answer type you want to have, it will make that suggestion. So it's taken the millions of survey questions that it had and analyzed them and sort of said, oh, questions like this map to this type of response. So it's this very narrow thing that's just sort of saying, oh, let me let me make this suggestion. It's not choosing it for you. It's just that when you get to that field, it's got a smart default. So it's it's sort of registering the signal that this format of question tends to map to this format of answer. Let me select that for you so that you don't have to, so that perhaps if this is correct, you don't have to go through and do that dozen things. So it's this idea of smart defaults, but it's also a really modest intervention, you know, that it's like, oh, I'm just going to save you the time and effort of making this selection. I'm just going to go in and, and suggest this for you. And I think that there are all these little places where we can have these almost casual intelligence added to the experience. So in the same way that on the web, we have um, JavaScript sort of almost casually added to our interaction to add a little bit of interactivity or a little bit of animation. We can have this that is helpful in some minor way. We can add this almost casual intelligence into the places that just help us a little bit more is another one that's just sort of like oh all right thanks yes that is the word that i would like especially on the phone where we're so error prone to have a few suggestions that show up that save me the the effort of typing those little tiny interventions where machine learning can can help i've found really helpful and are well suited to the capabilities of the of the algorithm that recovers nicely if it's wrong mm-hmm Super interesting. This can be very helpful to people to, you know, for efficiency cases or, you know, I think just to come to the right solution with a problem. Uh, at the same time, you could also argue that it's sort of, if you think about Google Forms as a creative software, maybe it's not so creative, but if you, if you consider, if you were imagine as a creative software, would you rec give you recommendations depending on what you want to do and give you the tools to solve it, uh, a creative problem, a more creative problem, let's say. 
that is almost yeah. like program creativity because, well, it's very different, I think, compared to starting with a white paper. If, let's say, your choose of options are tailored towards your project brief, maybe, or like what you want to do, right? So, you know, I see also, I see also a world where I think our creative processes or the processes which used to be where we have more freedom are being nudged, maybe driven or inspired by algorithmic uh, recommendation, which could also have a, a, a bit of a, a negative step because maybe we don't um, see it or experience it to that degree that we notice it. Yeah, I think overall just, you know, very interesting. Obviously, there are pros and cons of it because on the other side, you can also argue that it fosters creativity at the same time because if you think about, you know, generative design, I mean, you can come up to solutions you would never be able to come up yourself in a, such a short amount of time. Yeah, oh, I, mean, I think some of those generative things are really interesting. And as you say, can be can have a negative side too. I mean, I think we see this with Google. Um, I forget what they call the feature, but it's like smart suggest, I think, you know, that it'll sort of suggest how to finish a sentence for you uh, or suggest responses that maybe are a little bit more California language than what maybe other people would choose. So there's sort of a, a thing that it is suggesting content and style and language that affects how I am going to present myself. And they do it the right way in the sense that it is a suggestion. You know, it's not it's not writing the thing for you, but it is suggesting language to use. Sometimes it's helpful, especially for very mundane kinds of, you know, yes, I will meet you at 8 p.m. as usual. You know, it's like whatever, these sort of very simple things. But I've also sort of started doing some things where, you know, if you sort of follow its lead, it's going to suggest what I have for dinner. You know, it's like, do you want to meet for tacos? Yeah. So, okay. You know, and it's, it's so it, there's this thing that I think you're right. It begins to guide decisions and presentation in ways that are interesting. I mean, if you think about traffic is now driven by Waze or Google Maps, you know, if everyone is driving using one of these things, it's not just giving you the state of the traffic, it's determining the traffic because it's everyone is following these routes prescribed by the algorithm. And, you know, that's something where we're really and and you know and it and it tends to work so we trust it it's got a high confidence very accurate algorithm but it's an interesting thing where it's sort of like oh the actual the entire system is now being controlled by these private services mm -hmm. super interesting super interesting um looking at the time i know that we have to wrap it up uh quite soon but maybe as a, a question in the end so you've been working a lot of Protein. Of course, there's a lot of you know great upside on a lot of uh, the potentials of AI, but maybe you also had projects which didn't work out so well, or that you had any kind of failures or errors or experienced any kind of projects that didn't work so well around AI. And what did you learn based on that? Yeah, I think I think a lot of the things, and, and I sort of ran into this especially early on, where I had maybe higher hopes for what the algorithm could do. Than before, there were things where I think one of the common things that I, I, a mistake that I made early on and an assumption that I see a lot of clients making too is things around, for example, speech recognition or natural language recognition to, in, to introduce, for example, a chat bot or something like that. And confusing the recognition of the question 
and the mapping and the understanding of the natural language, confusing that with an ability to answer, uh, you know, and, and really ultimately what these bots introduce in the way that most of them are implemented is they aren't answering the thing, right? They're really, all that they're really doing is understanding the question, that they're providing a new kind of interface to browse content. You know, so if you have for, you know, a customer service chat bot, for example, you've essentially replaced an FAQ that I have to browse with a little sort of search engine that is very flexible in the way that I can answer the question. And that's, and that's useful. Don't get me wrong. One of the things that's really interesting about machine learning is that it has allowed us to have new kinds of interfaces that the machines can understand all of the wet, messy ways that we communicate as human beings, whether through speech or photos or handwriting, the machines can now understand it in a way that we couldn't. So it creates a new platform of interaction, but that's not, but, but that's ultimately you've still got to have good content beneath it because the machines can't make that up. They don't know the answers to your customer service questions. So I think part of the thing is just understanding where is the intelligence. And right now we're at a pretty good intelligence of making sense of the question, you know, of, of understanding all of these different ways that we communicate, but we aren't great at doing answers. And I, you know, I, so I think one of the, the things, places where I've, I made a lot of early mistakes and I see people trying to is almost sort of like kind of the Siri problem or the, you know, Google assistant where those systems are amazing. I mean, they really are amazing. And yet they constantly frustrate and disappoint us because the promise that they make is ask me anything. So high, right? And it's so high. It's like, treat me like a person. And it's like, so they're going to fail every time at that. But if if the prompt was, ask me to set a timer, well, they're great at that, right? Or ask me to play a song. Like we learn this small handful of things that they're reliable at. And because we have so many failures at this really high expectation that the service itself sets, that's all that we use them for, right? I think that most people use these things for a handful of things, you know, around setting a timer, playing music, which is great. That's a time saver, but also doesn't use, we're so unaware of, of so many of the things that they can do, but it's that initial promise was something that they couldn't set. So one of the, the, the things that I've had to learn through hard experience is how do I set appropriate behaviors for what the system is really capable of? So how do I set an expectation, not only what I can expect of the system, but how I want the user, the consumer to interact with the system? You know, and a lot of that is around language and presentation of how do we guide people to ask the right question, to use the thing in a way that will get a result that they expect. Um, so a lot of this stuff is about presentation. We were talking about treating things as a signal instead of as an answer. That's a presentation thing. That's a language thing. That's not the answer is this. The It's a sort of more like if the system registers a low confidence, you kind of say, I'm not sure, but I think it might be this, you know, which is, is a very different thing than just giving the answer either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally understand. I mean, 
you know, you can see it even on, on chatbots, for example, sometimes you, you're on a website, you're starting a, a chatbot, you don't even know if it's a chatbot or a real person because they put a real p people uh, picture there. And just if that chat window starts to reply, um, you understand it well, yeah, it's not, not, a, not a person. And sometimes you are not so sure if they, you know, a potentially a person comes in or maybe you just rooted to a bot because there was no actual person. So that's also sometimes a little bit, uh, challenging and um, yeah, sometimes I prefer actually to go to then to the FAQ than asking this bot to help me, you know, because it, you're more because you've had this unreliable result, right? Like probably, the promise yeah. that it makes didn't meet your expectation, and now the entire service or interaction is soured for you. Yeah, super interesting. I would, con would love to continue you know, chatting with you about AI. I think we're just getting started. Uh, but there were already so many uh, interesting points of view from you. So um, I think we need to wrap it up uh, in terms of recording here. So Josh, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Happy to continue it another time if you like. Thanks, Sebastian. All right, that was the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. Let me know in the comments about taking me in a post. What were the biggest learnings for you? in the episode. I'm always super curious about that. If the episode provides you a lot of value, make sure to follow and subscribe and share it with friends or others so they also have the chance to learn and grow themselves. All right, until next time. Cheers.